You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you have brought us together this morning. Already you have fed us, Lord, with the riches of corporate worship together, confessing our sins and receiving the promise of forgiveness and telling each other what we believe to be true about the world, about you, O Lord, and about the gospel, hearing your word preached and singing. We're, we're grateful. And I pray that in this educational hour that you will do your work uh, even here and show us, Lord, from the book of Ruth, um, all that you have to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so what we're going to spend, I don't even remember how long this series is. I, I think it's maybe six weeks or so. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm calling it a kind of journey through the writings uh, of the Old Testament. Today we're going to do Ruth. Um, next week we'll do Song of Solomon. Um, and I'm, I'm going to, uh, uh, well, it's going to make a bad sex joke, but I won't do it. Um, uh, so, but we'll do Song of Solomon next week. And then, and then we'll, we'll kind of move on through the writings. Let, let, me, let me tell you just a little bit about um, one one week in Ruth. So there's, there's a little bit of a silliness about all of this, but that's okay. I think it's, it'll be worth our worth our efforts. Um, you know, the writings from the standpoint of the the way the Hebrew canon is ordered is the third part of the Bible. Yes, yeah, so you have the law, you have the prophets, and then you get to the Psalms. It's all, it's ordered very differently than our English Bible, and I've said and talked about this enough around here to not need to really rehearse it again. But but once you get past um, the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then you do the prophets, which is Judges, or actually Joshua, all the way to Malachi, then you get to this third part called the writings, which most of the books, uh, most orderings, ancient orderings, begin with the book of Psalms. And then you move from Psalms to, to Proverbs and then to Job and then to these five small books that the, the Hebrew traditions refer to as the Megalote. Um, and these five small books that tended to be linked to certain Jewish festival traditions are um, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and the book of Esther. So we're, we're going to look at the book of Ruth today, and, and, uh, and Ruth and Esther have a lot in common in terms of overall theme and thematic. I'll talk about that at the end of our, our lesson today. Um, but but the, the writings, if I, can, if I can summarize the writings, the writings are, um, if, if I could maybe title them this way, and now so what? I mean, that's, that's kind of what the writings are. You've got the law and the prophets, which form... The fundamental grammar of the Old Testament, in fact, kind of functions like shorthand for the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And the writings come along and raise the question for us in ways that I, I still find stunning that the Bible can be so openly candid about the challenges of faith. And, and what, is it, what, what does one do when what you believe to be true about God, the law and the prophets, comes into some sort of tension, or uh, that, that's too kind of a word, a head-on collision with my experience. I mean, what do I do And what I'm experiencing does not seem to add up to the truth of God's revealed word and the law and the prophets? And it's like, well, welcome the writings. So the book of Psalms wrestles with this. Proverbs provides for you these kind of maxims for living, right? 
Um, and, and, and what are Proverbs? Well, they're helping you kind of navigate life under the sun to just live life well. It's, it's, the, kind of, you know, it's the kind of thing that fathers and mothers tell their children. Um, you know, how to balance a checkbook. And, and when you're dealing with an ornery person, you might want to kind of measure your words when you're dealing with an ornery person. Or, hey, when you're around somebody that's really important, like the king, don't shovel food down your mouth. I mean, these are the kind of things that Proverbs is talking about. It's a very for ordinary life, ordinary life living. And yet Proverbs also leaves us with a kind of built-in internal tension. Um, answer a fool according to his folly. Next verse, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And there are scholars who will say that's just an example of detography. It was a, it was a scribal error that was a mistake. Choose which one, but get rid of one of them. And I, I would say there's, there's no rationale for that. There's no, no textual evidence for that. So, so what are we doing here? Well, that's, ex- to me, exhibit A of what the Proverbs are all about. Like, you know what? There are some situations in life where you probably need to just challenge a fool. There are other situations in life where you just probably need to keep your mouth shut and not say a word. And you're like, well, how do you know when? The answer, wisdom. Next verse. You're going to move on. So, so, so the, the, the writings bring us from the realm of the lofty. They don't, they don't move the lofty outside of our purview, but they move us from the realm of the lofty into a very concretized form of human existence. So think about what's in the writings. You've got Psalms and Proverbs, and you've got a book like Job, um, which introduces, I mean, are we, in a, we, we need some Job these days. Um, God no longer is operating according to the way in which I've known him before. I've grown accustomed to a certain pattern of relating to the God of the universe. And that's not happening anymore. That, that, by the way, is Job's greatest suffering in the book. He thought he knew who God was. And God was not acting according to the plan. And it threw his world upside down. And how does God answer Job in the midst of his own complexity about who God is? He gives him another crash course in his presence and existence. Where were you when I made the foundations of the world? Um, you know, Leviathan and Behemoth, if you saw them today, they'd scare the you-know-what out of you. But I just play catch with them out in the backyard, Job. That's who I am. And what does Job do in the middle of all that? Puts his hand over his mouth, praises God, worships, and he's atoned for. Now, so it's very real. There's a kind of earthiness about the writings that I, that I appreciate because I think we all would like, at least I would, and at one point in time in my Christian life, I was after this, maybe you have been too, I'd like a kind of Christian spiritual existence that's more Buddhist in shape. I was like, I'd like to get kind of to a place where I'm not troubled by the cares of this world anymore. A kind of what one might call a, um, a, a, a kind of... A, um, early Greek model, you know, or something like that, a sophist model, or something that I can just kind of escape the troubles of this world and not get too happy, not get too sad, just kind of live right down the middle. Um, Cicero, by the way, is a great example of this in history. Cicero was one who argued according to these certain principles of being, don't get too happy, don't get too sad, just kind of live in the middle, don't let anything external to you throw you off balance until his daughter died. Then Cicero's daughter died, all bets off, and he was, he was besought with grief. Um, so we, and, the, and that's what I like about the, 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 the example of Christian faith that we have in the writings. It doesn't allow, it doesn't give space for that, what I would call escapist religion. It forces you to live real life with all of its complexities. There's no get out of jail free card because you've asked Jesus into your heart. You get a first class train ticket to human existence just like everybody else. 
And now let's talk about that a little bit. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and then you get into these books called the Megalote, which are very, very earthy like Ruth. Um, so here we are with Ruth. Can, can we talk about the book for a little bit? And, and we've got such limited time, but can I, just, can I just tell you the story? This is such a great story. I think it's very possible. I mean, Ruth, um, in, in the Hebrew world where I teach, it's one of the first books that Hebrew students will read. Um, you know, they work hard in semesters one and two. I told them that's like, they, they go through, that's Dante's Inferno. Um, and, then, and then they get, you know, to the um, Purgatorio, I guess, by actually getting to read the book of Ruth and Jonah. Two very, very fun books. Ruth is stylistically beautiful. There's something about the actual aesthetic quality of the book of Ruth itself that it, it is not. I, I wouldn't say this, by the way, about all of the Old Testament. It's all inspired. It's all God's word. But it's not all of equal quality. Right. Ruth is a sort of remarkably beautiful novella. Right. That's sort of working in a very terse and direct way. And, and what's the story? Well, you have Ruth and her husband, Elimelech, who um, in, in a time of famine in Judah, go to the place that it's never said, but it's kind of like, mm, I don't know about that. You're going to, the, to, to, to Moab to be among the, among the Moabites. And, you know, there's all of these surrounding nations around Israel that some of them get a pass and some of them don't. Like the Midianites, always friends of Israel, right? The Edomites, uh-uh, right? not, not so much. You're not inviting them to Thanksgiving. Um, the Moabites, another group kind of from the south down in the plains region, they're, they're kind of meddlesome as well. So here you have Ruth and Elimelech um, going off to uh, Moab and they, their are two sons with them, Kilion and, and um, who am I saying? Oh, you knew who I was talking about, David, right? I'm, I'm joking. Naomi. Ruth is coming later. Sorry. So Naomi goes with her husband, right? She's there. And, and, and then they, and her, two, her, her two sons, they get married. You know the story. Um, they marry Moabite women. And, uh, and then it goes from worse to worse. And then again, this is why the book of Ruth fits so well within the writings. Now, you might be raising a question. Why are we dealing with Ruth in the writings when in my Bible it's between Judges and Samuel? Ruth is one of these fascinating books that kind of can, can migrate, just like Ruth and Naomi herself, they can, it can migrate canonically. Ruth fits very well right after Proverbs 31, which is where it's located, by the way, in the Hebrew canon. How does Proverbs 31 end? With that portrait of the, the, the Chayil um, Isha, the virtuous woman. That, that's how Proverbs 31 ends. Well, guess how Ruth is described in, 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 uh, in uh, Ruth 3? She's described as a, a Chayil Isha, a virtuous woman. Um, so there's this kind of nice chain link between the end of Proverbs and Ruth that fits very nicely. Um, but guess what? It also fits very well between Judges and Samuel. Why? Because at the end of the book of, of Ruth, we see that we're in the period when everyone was kind of doing right in their own eyes in the, in the time of the Judges. So it fits in both places. And it seems, and this is kind of interesting, it seems to by intention fit in both places. It can, it can move and migrate. Um, so here you have this story about Ruth, though, who, I mean, Naomi, who goes to a land outside of Judah, and she experiences what, what we might call a cascade of negative events. Um, first thing happens, right? Her son dies. Um, I mean, her husband dies. Um, and, and that's bad, but it's not the end of the world in the ancient world. 
right? Because how does it work in the ancient world? It works for women that for them in this sort of patriarchal world, it's hard for us to imagine that given our moment. But in that world, a woman's safety was built by the patriarchal system around her. So, so think about, for example, in, in, the, in the Pentateuch, when God speaks about those who are vulnerable, I mean, real justice is done toward those who are vulnerable in society. And this is what's so fascinating about the Pentateuch. God does not leave those categories in the abstract. He gets very concrete with them. Who are the vulnerable? The orphan, they're vulnerable. The alien sojourner in the land and the widow. I mean, why is the widow vulnerable? Because her husband provided for her a kind of social safety network, right? For her own well-being. Well, um, if you have sons, and it's so strange in our world. This is not our world. But back then, if you had sons, well, then the sons step in to protect and care for the mother with the father's death and absence. Honor your father and mother had a lot of teeth to it in the ancient world, Right? And it should today as well. So here you have this, 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 this the, the, the husband's gone. That's bad. But then the unthinkable occurs. Her two sons are now dead. So you go from bad to catastrophic in what appears like a Job-like moment overnight. So here you have Naomi, the Judahite woman, who's in Moab as a foreigner, who no longer has a husband, who no longer has sons, and has no social or familial uh, network to sustain and buoy her, by the way, not just to pad her 401k and and to manage her portfolio, we're not talking about that, for her to eat tonight. the, The consequences are that dire. So you have this really dramatic scene here in the beginning of Ruth, where Ruth is, I mean, where Naomi is talking to her daughter-in-law's Ruth and Orpah, who've married her sons, and she says, go back to your mother's house. It's it's an intense scene. The the, the women are weeping, Orpah's weeping, Ruth is weeping, and, and Naomi says, go back. And they're like, no, we're staying with you. And then she presses them again. She's like, this is silly. She's like, and then she gets, I mean, you can hear this. She gets um, sarcastic with them. If I met a man tonight, married him and got pregnant and had two sons, are you going to wait the 16, 17, 18 years until they're ready to marry? She says, of course not. This is silly. You're young. You still have your own social fabric, your network of protection. Go back to your father and your mother's house. And Orpah, and by the way, she's not presented negatively for doing this. Orpah does what everyone would conceive of in the moment as the sensible thing. She goes back to her mother's house. And it's conceivable, we don't know the story, but it's conceivable that she married again. And, and lived, one might even conceive of, as happily ever after. But there goes Orpah. She's what narrative people will call a flat character. There's, there's not a lot going on with Orpah. She weeps, she goes, she's, she's, she's gone. But not Ruth. So here you have Ruth who attaches herself to her, her grieving mother-in-law and says in words that are so moving, your people, which by the way, this is all covenantal language, your people will be my people and my people will be your people. Your God will be my God. And it's, it's a beautiful scene. Now, I will say, I grew up in the Baptist world where those verses were used a lot in weddings. Um, you know, my people, I think, it's interesting. I don't know how to. I don't know how to unpack all this. But for people to use mother-in-law, daughter-in-law 
language between husband and wife. That's, that gets complicated, I think. But I don't, I don't want to go down that road. Um, but it's a beautiful scene. So here goes Ruth and here go Naomi, the wandering to vulnerable women, um, the barren woman, the woman with no child, which is a theme throughout the Bible. It's a theme that you find with, with Sarah and then Rachel and then Hannah and then Lady Zion is described in Isaiah as a barren woman. This is a theme that makes its way through the Bible. So here come Ruth and, and Naomi now, in effect, in their barrenness, or let's just say in their childlessness, no offspring, back to the land of Judah. And Naomi, the name Naomi means my delight, not all me, right? My delight. And she comes back to the land back to Bethlehem, her, her village, her people, and they're all stunned. It's that awkward moment at the high school reunion where you're like, same person? By the way, that's one of the reasons I will not go to my high school reunion, because I'll be that guy, right? Like, are you, who, who are you? I'm like, yeah, I'm leaving. Um, so here comes, here comes Naomi, and she doesn't, she's, she doesn't look the same anymore. She's riddled with grief. And what does Naomi say? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because God has dealt bitterly with me. Mara meaning bitterness. Now, let me stop, because there's going to be two big takeaways from the book of Ruth today. The two takeaways, so I don't bury the lead, are the, the hardness and the goodness of God's providence and the power of God to redeem in moments that seem unredeemable. So the, good, the hardness and the goodness of God's providence and the power of God to redeem in moments that seem unredeemable. That's, that's what Ruth is going to leave us with. Because one of the things that Ruth, I mean that Naomi, does not confuse is the fact that God in some way is involved in her suffering. That, that's, that's big boy and girl Christianity. That's meat and potatoes Christianity. Um, and again, I think we should always be somewhat slow to work big, explanatory, philosophical schemes off of that truth that connect all the dots. There's a lot of mystery to this. There's a lot that we don't understand. And there's a lot that we should probably stay silent on in the face of human suffering in light of God's sovereignty. But one thing that the Bible does not clear its throat on, book of Amos, is a calamity come on a city and the Lord does not bring it. One thing that we cannot step back from is that God involves himself in the sufferings of humanity for his own overarching purposes. And that is a hard, hard pill to swallow. Um, the sovereignty of God, which is something that I do really believe in, and, and, and not so much in the theoretical, I'm, I'm less and less interested in defining theoretical explanations of all of that, but the truth that God is involved and the complexity and suffering of human existence is a very, very hard pill to swallow. And it's one of those things where, you know, I tell people, like, believing that God is sovereign um, doesn't always mean that it's good news, at least in your moment. Now, it means that it's good news ultimately and finally. I believe that's true. God is working these purposes toward his ultimate redemptive end, even if that means our death and our awaking in a new heavens and a new earth. So he's working it out toward his good, but it doesn't mean that all of our moments along the way are going to be sunshine and soap suds. There's no promise to that. There's a promise that he has us and he won't let us go all the way to the end, but it doesn't mean that the moment that you're in now is necessarily going to be a great one. You know, there's an old joke about this, right? Um, you know, about Calvinists and Arminians or 
Cal- Presbyterians and Wesleyan Methodists, right? Um, the, old, the old joke was, what does a, what does a Methodist or a Wesleyan or, or an Arminian say when they fall down the stairs? They say, i got to watch my step. But what does the Calvinist Presbyterian say when he or she falls down the stairs? Sure glad that's over with. Uh, yeah, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah. That's bad. Anyway, the, 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 the point is we cannot transcend the suffering of what it means to be human. And, and Naomi provides no complex theological or philosophical explanation for it. But she simply says, God has dealt bitterly with me. Job says the exact same thing. Job is not ever comfortable saying that what I'm going through right now has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with God. And wrestling with that reality is somewhere near the heart of the Christian struggle for faith. And Naomi is struggling with it. So here they are in their absolute moment of despondency to women alone. And by the way, again, I can't get lost in all the weeds of this, but it's very clear through the book of Ruth that Ruth as a young woman is vulnerable. As a young unmarried woman, she's vulnerable. Do you know, I mean, there are several times where when she starts gleaning in Boaz's field, where Boaz says to the young men, and these are just little throwaway lines and you move on, but Boaz says very clearly, don't lay a hand on her. Don't, don't touch her. Um, what does Naomi say later on when she finds out that it's Boaz's field? She's in effect, this is the Genelette rendering, thank God, because you're, uh, you might have been attacked in another field. In other words, this is, this is ultimate vulnerability. They're exposed to the evil of the world. That's the moment in which they're in. And in the middle of that, God shows up. And how does God show up? This is how God shows up. It's great. She ends up gleaning at a field. Ruth goes out. Naomi's obviously not strong enough to do this. So Ruth goes out and they, they, she begins to glean in a field. She's a Moabite woman. She works hard day up, sun, you know, sun up to sundown. And Boaz takes an interest in her, sees her, even gives a little direction to his young men, apparently his workers, and says, hey, make sure that you leave a little extra for her. Um, so God begins. What, what are you feeling here? You're feeling tremors in the universe as you move from Ruth 1 into Ruth 2. I mean, by the matter of fact, the way this is set up, if you're doing a stage play, it's like Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4. The, the chapters are given to you just like a stage play, like a like Nobokov or something like that. So here you have this sort of beautiful sort of stage one, act one, two, three. And what do we do in act two? Tremors begin to happen. The, the universe is starting to move a little bit for Ruth and Naomi. What seemed destitute and despondent has now moved at least to a moment of hope and thanksgiving. We've got food. You see, that's it. We, we can eat tonight. Um, wh- what field did you go to, Naomi? Wh- where, where did you end up? Well, this man named Boaz. She said, Boaz? Well, Boaz happens to be within our familial clan. Well, what a great fortuitous providence that you, of all the fields, you landed in Boaz. We're linked to him familially. Keep going there. He'll protect you. And then we get to the romance part of Ruth 3. Um, and this is, oh, it's so, it's so good. I call it, um, uh, I, 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 this is probably not, I probably need to stop this, but I'll do it one more time. Um, I, I, I think of Ruth 3 as... Um, a, 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 an HBO miniseries that ends up being a Hallmark movie. Right? In other words, like um, it's titillating. You know, there's something like because uh, you know, what happens? Well, n- now Naomi, wise Naomi, and wisdom, by the way, is presented in the Bible as a, often as a woman 
<laughs> There's a lot of truth to that, right? Husbands do well to remember that. Um, here's, here's wisdom coming through Naomi's mouth to her daughter saying, I'm seeing the stars align and we're going to go big right now. Well, how are we going to go big? This is how we're going to go big. You get on, you take a bath, you put your best perfume on, you put your best dress on, what a dress, but whatever, you put your best clothing on. And in the middle of the night, this is, this is risky, right? When, um, can I just put it to you, this is where all adults in here. When, when Boaz is good and drunk, he's, I mean, he's, he's had his evening, and he's on the middle of the floor, of the threshing floor, go lay down at his feet and uncover his feet and just wait to see what he says. And of course, you read enough in the commentary literature, you realize all this is like, is, is this some circumlocution going on here? Are these, is, there, is, 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 is this getting a little uh, sensual? And, it, and I'll be honest with you, it feels that way. It's presented that way. It's meant to make you go, ooh, that's, that's, that's the HBO promise, right? But then it turns into just a Hallmark film. Right, Because what happens, he wakes up, it's one of my favorite lines in all the Bible, where it says, the narrator in Ruth 3 says, and Boaz woke up and behold, a woman. It's like, that, that, that was a shocker, right? He wakes up in the night, there's a woman at his feet, he sees who it is, and boom, now everything begins to fall into line. It's like you move from chapter 1, cascade of negative events. Chapter 2, tremors of God's hope begin to emerge. Chapter 3, now it's like the Mount Vesuvius has erupted. Because now what's happening? Well, Ruth, who had no protection at all, has Boaz see her, knows that that's an offer of herself to him in marriage. And he says, all right, we're going to do this. And I love this because it shows Boaz is such an honorable man. What does Boaz say? He says, listen, make sure that you leave before the sun comes up because I don't want anybody to speak ill of you. Um, so before the sun comes up, keep yourself cloaked and kind of go back and I will take care of business. And to make a long story short, couple of things that Boaz has to finagle with his, his family, but it all works out for Ruth and Boaz to be married. And it's, it's, you've, you've gone from rags to riches in four chapters. It is a great and powerful and beautiful story that you have here in the book of Ruth. And how does the book of Ruth end? I want you to, to at least see this because it's worth observing. How does the book of Ruth end? Yes. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord, I love the way the Bible describes this, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son and then the women said to Naomi, isn't that interesting? It's Ruth's the one that's just delivered a child here. But the women said to Naomi, bless the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin and may his name be renowned in all of Israel he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has borne him. And look at how the scene moves, right? You have Naomi and destitution in chapter one. And how's the depiction of Naomi given to us here at the end of the book? Look at this. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her bosom. She became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. Oh, and here comes the genealogy. Who happened to be the father of Jesse? Who happened to be the father of David? And then, like David has mentioned here, and then the Bible goes boring on us. And it's crazy how the Bible will do this. 
How does it end? You're like, oh man, that's so good. What's the last thing going to be? Well, let me give you two verses of a genealogy. It's like, oh, snoozer, right? Um, you've, done, you've done this before, reading through, and then you get to the book of First Chronicles. You're like, oh my, eight, nine chapters of, of genealogy? Luke chapter one, Matthew chapter one, all these genealogies. Like, what's going on? Why is the Bible so interested in genealogies? You have this in the book of Genesis. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the whole book of Genesis is structured around genealogies. This is the generation of the heavens and earth when they were created. This is the generations of Jesse. Da 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 da. So you have all these movement here of the, of the generations of what's what's the deal with genealogies? It's the promise of God. To make good on his redemptive claims through time and through space, through human history. God is involved in the affairs of human history. Um, And he uses just the the normal warp and woof of human existence to accomplish his goals. Here is Naomi holding a child at the end of the book. When at the beginning of the book, all bets seemed off for her. So what's, what do we see here from this sort of aerial view of the book of Ruth, which is very similar. We won't talk about Esther in, the, in this little class, but very similar to Esther. What's part of the challenge with the book of Esther? You know, Esther is a very controversial book. It's controversial for a lot of reasons. There, there were rabbis um, who did not think the book of Esther canonical. And, and, and I have some sympathy for at least what their rationale was, right? You do know God's, na- God's never mentioned in the book. And there's some shady business in the, in the book of Esther. Real shady. You know, when, when King Ahasuerus is having a beauty contest for his next wife, and then, you know, Esther goes in and spends the whole evening with him, that probably was an HBO miniseries. I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's not clean. It's messy. Uh, and yet, in the messiness of all of that, what's, what, what is Esther teaching us, that Ruth is as well? That God's providence is at work even in the messiness of of creaturely affairs. And my wife was sharing with me a quote this morning that she read somewhere, a fellow named, I can't remember even the author, but, but where God even takes our sin. I mean, when we really hash it up and mess things up, that God can use that and does use even our sin as an opportunity for Him to correct and instruct and bring something new out of the mess. That's what our God does. And I'm not quite sure how to say this, but our God is not afraid of getting involved in the muck and mess of creaturely business. That's what providence is all about. Providence is God's ordering of human history for His own redemptive end. And we see both of those things meeting one another in a very rich and powerful way in the book of Ruth. God's ordering human affairs and the messiness of it for His own redemptive purposes. Naomi is holding a child that's the grandfather of King, or the great-grandfather of King David. It's remarkable. So you see all these things emerging here in the book of Ruth to teach us something about the character of our God. It's, it's easy, I think, um, when, you get, when we get tunnel vision. And we all do. It's, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I wish there was a remedy to escape this. Maybe some of you know it and you can send me a note. Um, but we all do get tunnel vision in our moments. Um, w- with whatever suffering happens to be on the front porch at that moment in time. The thing that causes you to lose sleep. That thing that gnaws at you from the inside. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, that's, that's the famous line from Tolstoy, right? And Anna Karenina, all happy families are happy in the same way, but every unhappy family are unhappy in their own unique ways. 
I think we can just probably say that about everyone. We all know that we have our own unique struggles and circumstances of our lives. And here we see something about the promise of God to be involved in those affairs, to order them in such a way, to bring his own good purposes to an end ultimately and finally. Romans 8.28 can often be used in a glib way. Um, I've seen it used in a glib way. Uh, God works all things together for his own good purposes. Um, and so you can, you know, somebody can have had some enormous loss in their life and someone can, you know, kind of say, well, well God will work all things together for good. I, I, we, we don't always know what that will look like. I think we need to be careful about how we use some of these. Remember, Job's friends were at their best when they didn't say a word. There's some, something instructive about that. Um, but the truth that God is involved in all affairs of our lives to bring them, up, to bring them toward his ultimate end, even if that end is a deep and abiding yearning for heaven. That is its own good end, by the way. A recognition that we yearn for heaven where things will be made right and new. We yearn for that because King David's great-great-great-great-grandson, King Jesus, came to this earth in order to bring heaven and earth into one. That's why he came. He came to make everything new. That's our hope. And in the middle of this beautiful and complex novella of the book of Ruth, we see the purposes of God to bring the cosmos back into proper order again through King David's offspring, King Jesus. It all begins to fit. So in the suffering and the disorder of our lives, we see that God's providence is at work to draw us out of that. And we pray that he does into greener pastures. Or perhaps the greener pastures are... A deep and abiding hope for heaven itself. What Jonathan Edwards called heaven, a world of love. Think about that. A world where the love of God and the love of our neighbor are unhindered by any of those things, those encumbrances that hinder us and our love of God and our love of neighbor here in this world. Okay. All right. That was Ruth in a nutshell. Um, Am I supposed to stop now? Anybody want to ask a question? Anybody want to fire something? Yeah. This isn't a question, but it, and I wish this was my gleaming. But Boaz comes out, comes off as one of the almost only person, male hero figure, that does not have feet of clay, that does not fail at some point in the story of in the story of Ruth and Boaz. He's he can almost apply that you could almost say it's a, it's a little bit of a adventure in typology that he becomes a type, he is a type of person who becomes the redeemer. No questions. I, I think, and I love the way that, that sort of last move that you made there, thinking in terms of a kind of uh, Christ typology. I mean, he's, he's called the redeemer. The goel is the te- technical term in Hebrew. He's, he's the redeemer. He's the one. Now, that's a technical term about familial relations in that world. But to see Boaz as a, as a Christ figure, sort of typologically related to that, I think there's all kinds of grounds for thinking about that in terms that are very warranted. Similar with Joseph as well. Joseph's one of those characters that, you know, he's, um, I mean, other than the hubris of his youth, it's kind of hard to pin Joseph with sort of moral failings. David, he's a mess from beginning to end, right? Um, you know, so it's, that's, that's an interesting point. Yeah, Don. I 
Yeah, it's it's never it's Rahab. Now um, it's just left there like that, um, and and you have to do a little bit of calculations temporally to see if if the stars can align on this, and they kind of do. Um, but it's just kind of left in the open, which is interesting, isn't it? Because that that we assume that that means that original readers would have immediately made an identification. Um, so, uh, and I think the tradition has read that as Rahab the harlot. Um, the tradition's read it that way. It's not, I would say, just from a purely exegetical standpoint, it's not self-evident. Um, but I think from, again, this kind of typological point of reasoning, how everyone thinks of this historically, there was certainly something to be made there. And the fact that it's Rahab, a foreigner, you know, and a prostitute, I mean, uh, that, 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 that makes family reunions awkward, right? Um, and, and then also Ruth, who's a Moabite woman. And I didn't even say this, but by the end of the book, Ruth, all the way through the book, Ruth is called the Moabitess, the Moabitess, the Moabitess. And when you get to chapter 4, she's no longer the Moabitess. So something's happened to Ruth, even on the, on the level of her, uh, on, on the existence of her being, that she's now described in terms that's related to the Lord. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of remarkable that this is that what, what I would make a distinction between surface meanings of the Bible and then bonus meanings that lay kind of underneath the surface. They're not articulated for us. It requires the work of, of what you would call associative reading. But it's remarkable how many narratives in the Bible are meant to be sort of mimetically corresponding to the actual history of Israel. Abraham's whole narrative is another one. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. That's where you find death with the Moabites. You find death with the Egyptians, with Moses as well. There's got to be a movement out. Yeah. Okay, y'all. You're dismissed. Blessings. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent